Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. And a very good morning to you, live from Studio 1.5. We're back to the new year. A happy new year to you, the 4th of January 2021. It's been a very bleak Christmas and New Year for many reasons, but particularly in terms of the surging numbers of COVID-19. We'll focus on that a little bit this morning. See just how bad is the situation. The school's supposed to go back this day next week. Can it actually happen? Is that realistic? Can it actually happen that the schools will go back uh, this time next week? I'd like your views on that. Will you, for example, be sending your children to school this day next week, regardless of what the government says, regardless of what the Minister of Education says? Do you plan on sending your kids to school this day next week? I'm wondering if my children were back at school going age, what I would do. I genuinely, honestly, don't know what I would do, and that's where I'm coming from this morning. Looking at the newspapers, we see that The Independent is reporting that they now may have to stop offering a test to everyone with symptoms. Like, that's crazy. At the moment, if you report symptoms, you get called to a test, you get called quite quickly to a test, in fact. You go, you have your test, and you get your results back maybe, what, 24, 48 hours later. They may have to start prioritizing who gets a test. That's a very, very worrying development. The Echo quotes a Cork GP, Mary Favier, who says hospitals will soon be overrun if the spread isn't brought under control. Like Words like that, they're not words that doctors and scientists use easy. They don't talk about things being overrun they don't just drop that word like an idiot like me would on the wireless. You know what I mean? They don't do that, but they are using those words. The examiner says the hospital system is at breaking point. Breaking point. Four days into the new year. And I will be talking in just a sec to Dr. Nula O'Connor from the Irish College of GPs about the incredibly serious situation. Like at CUH, we now know that there are 100 nurses out of commission through COVID. Either they either have it or they are close contacts. We, we don't know which, obviously, but that's the situation. It's, it's so bad that they had to close a ward. Like, all this happened over Christmas and New Year. So I decided the first thing I would do this morning is look at the numbers, the Cork numbers. Actually, don't I'll do? I'll hold those. I'll hold those in reserve, and I'll go straight to the line there, Wayne, and talk to Dr. O'Connor, who is the... Irish College of GPs COVID-19 lead, and of course, a Cork GP. Uh, Dr. Nuala, good morning to you. 
Good morning and happy new year to you. And to you, uh, they almost seem like inappropriate words, but very much so we, we wish each other that. <clears throat> the numbers, Nula, have just skyrocketed over Christmas. It, it must have been a fairly hard Christmas and New Year on the front line. Yeah, it has been very hard. I mean, this virus is, is absolutely out of control at this stage. Um, so uh, the last couple of days in South Dock, uh, they were getting 150 calls per hour uh, COVID-related. Um, so, uh, you know, it is, is, is so very much out there. And the absolutely clear message is uh, that what we all need to do is we all need to stay at home and only mix with our own households unless it is essential uh, to do to do anything else. Uh, the only thing you should be doing is going to get essential groceries, maybe going out exercising on your own. Another thing is, you know, we are very conscious of our elderly uh, in the community. So as we did in the early phases, to reach out to those, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, if there is somebody that you know that's on their own in your area, please do reach out to them, see if there's some way that you can help them, but while obviously maintaining a distance from them. It almost seems like a silly question, Nula. How did it get this bad? Essentially, really, this virus, as you know, it loves when people get together, and we all socialise too much. Simple as that. Uh, it started in Even December. the little bit that we did, and speaking personally, I, I had, I met my family for maybe an hour Christmas Day. Uh, my brother and my sister for an hour Christmas Day. That was the sole content of our socialising over Christmas. And thankfully, we're all okay. But, but I suppose not everybody stayed within those limitations. Absolutely, they didn't. Uh, you know, I think there, there are some things that were unfortunate. I mean, um, the, the restaurants opened, and as you know, there were six people from six different households allowed to meet in the restaurant. And we did have quite a number of what we call super spreader events there, because sometimes even when you're doing the, you know, you're actually obeying all of the rules as such in in, in a, yeah. a controlled environment like that, you can still pick it up because we know now that about eighty percent of the cases are, are caused by 20% of people which are super spreaders. So despite doing all of, of, of the right things, and, and there is no stigma. I mean, this is a very, very infectious and contagious virus. But we also do know, because we know the amount of close contacts that people had, and while it was okay to meet some people and friends and family in a, in a controlled environment over Christmas, unfortunately, the, uh, with the contact tracers, we're having people who've had 20, 30-plus close contacts, uh, some very large groups and gatherings, uh, parties that went on, and then lots of cases coming out of those. So I, I do believe that actually the vast majority of people in Ireland really did try to abide by the by by uh, the, the, the public health measures. Um, but it, this virus, uh, there was just still too much mixing that went on there and this, this virus has really taken hold in our communities. Uh, but I think what we need to do now is rather than looking backwards, I think we need to concentrate on what we can all do because mm. we got this under control before. A third wave was always expected. This is the way that pandemics go. And the third wave is always the worst. Don't ask me why. It's just the way it is with pandemics. Um, um, but uh, we can get it back under control. But it means that each and every single person must play their part, um, even you know, even more so than they did in, in the previous two waves. And I know that the Irish people can actually do that. In March... Nola, when we were told to stay at home, we stayed at home. And right into April and Easter, we stayed at home. 
we don't seem to have done that this time. We really have to now for the next few weeks. It is absolutely critical. As you mentioned there, uh, we have to protect our elderly citizens and our medically vulnerable. They have now been all asked to go back and to stay at home. We're back to this cocooning. Our hospitals, as you know, they are in a very precarious position um, at the moment. Uh, But not just our hospitals, our frontline services, uh, general practices. I mean, the the out of hours uh, over the weekend, which as you know, we only have three and a half thousand GPs in this country. And it's the same GPs that do the out of hours as well. Yeah. Uh, so we are all pinned to our collar. We, general practice is never closed. It is not closing now. We will always be there for our patients. Um, but what we're, we're trying to do to protect everybody is uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be limiting our, our, our services. We'll be trying to keep essential things like childhood vaccinations going because the last thing we want is to get an outbreak of measles or something like that. Uh, we will be uh, uh, seeing anybody with medical emergencies, but we will be trying pulling back and we've advised our members to pull back on some of the more you know health check type stuff that, that could be put off for a couple mm. of weeks. Uh, so it's important. Uh, we, we can do a lot of stuff over the phone um, or by video consultation, but we do need people to be patient with us because obviously the phone lines are busy Uh, we're getting to people uh, as quickly as we can but I cannot stress how important it is that everybody everybody stays at home, stays at home from work. We need employers to actually not be putting pressure onto people to come in to please work from home. Mm. We also need employers, we've heard stories of people who've been identified as a close contact and their employer is putting them under pressure to actually get a test. The last thing that we need at the moment, and we know what's happening, is people making up symptoms to get a test. We need employers to respect that somebody has been told they're a close contact. If you're a close contact, you must you must stay at home and restrict your movements for a full 14 days. Even if you tested negative 14 days in a row, it does not change the behaviour. Uh, this country has had a bit of an obsession with the actual test itself. It is your personal behaviour is what counts. Yeah. So if you have symptoms, you move to your room. Symptoms, you stay in your room. Uh, you, you, everyone else then in your house uh, uh, stays at home. Uh, you contact your GP. We will get you organised uh, for a test, um, and then we will take it from there. The, the, the report in the uh, Independent this morning that they may need to stop offering tests as a routine to people who are symptomatic, that, that's worrying. I, I'm glad you brought that up, because what I'd like to do is to address that. That was um, a, a line in a private communication to GP, GP practices by me, which has been taken completely out of context. Oh. Uh, the, the, the testing and contact tracing system that the HSE has in place is, is remarkable, the amount of uh, volume of tests and calls that are being done Absolutely remarkable. And it's a testament to the hard work of each and every one of those. The system is holding up. That was part of a private thing about potential things that may happen um, uh, when we move to mitigation phase. How we test and the approach to testing differs in pandemics between containment and mitigation. Um, So that was part actually of of a three-page, one-line um, of a three-page communication to general practitioners, which was leaked by somebody to a newspaper. There you go. That's interesting. Well, I'm glad I brought the question up with you now. Just in terms of South Dock and the numbers that you reported of calls, like we did also hear over the weekend that COH is now advising patients to go directly to South Dock rather than to present 
at the ED. Like, that's going to make things even busier at South Dock. Can South well, Dock it, it, cope? So I think what, um, uh, well, we've certainly been, been, been under pressure. Um, uh, we're, we're getting as many people on the phone lines. But again, just to remind you, it's the same people um, that are, giving the service during the day, GPs are also doing it in South Talk. So what I would say to people is just think before you ring. We absolutely want to see any people who've got medical uh, emergencies who are feeling, feeling acutely unwell. But if it's you're just wondering, gosh, I'm not sure, I think I might be a close contact, I'm not quite sure what to do, please go to the HSC website, which is absolutely excellent. See if you can find the answer there first. And then if, if if you can't find the answer there, then uh, uh, to ring your GP or to ring the out-of-hours. But we want to reserve um, both daytime and out-of-hours practices for people who are medically unwell, people who have symptoms that so we need to get them tested for COVID, but also all the other non-COVID stuff, because people are going to still, um, unfortunately, get heart attacks, get strokes, uh, you know, get, get warning symptoms for, for cancer. We need all of those people to still come to see us. Mm. Um, but so if if it's so if if you're feeling well um, and it's just really information, please go to the website first. But please also, we don't want people not to present to us because uh, we don't want to miss all of the non-COVID stuff. Yeah. But we can do a lot of uh, um, telephone consultations. We can we can figure out on the phone is this something that needs you to come in to see us face to face or not. So just please be patient. Uh, we have general practice has never closed. We have always been open right throughout this, and we will continue to be there for mm. our patients. Uh, you just need to be patient with us. The numbers over the weekend, uh, Nuala, were eye-watering uh, and and just frightening. Actually, is probably a better word for it. Nearly five thousand last night. Is there a fear that it can actually get worse before it gets better? Because listening to to Philip Nolan over the last few days, he seems to think so. Yeah, I think it will get worse before it gets better. How much worse? It's a little bit hard to tell because there's a time lag. It all depends on what people's behaviour was. Um, so, uh, you know, when you think about the incubation period of this virus, so if you get exposed to this virus, you could develop symptoms. Uh, generally speaking, you start at two days, but you could develop them from five to seven days. So it's a, we're looking at a 14-day window because if you're a close contact, we say it's 14 days before you're definitely out of the woods. Yeah. So, 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 so you just go back fourteen days, and and you you, you just see you know. So we we started post Christmas. Hopefully, people reduced after after Stephen's day. Hopefully, people started to reduce their close contacts. Um, I would hope by now everybody is absolutely paying uh, attention to what we've said. And but I think we, we're still going to be dealing with the mixing that went on uh, in the week between Christmas and New Year, and over the New Year weekend. And right. we're going to be dealing that with, with that for another maybe 10 to 14, 10, at least 10 days. Hmm. Um, I don't know whether this is your, your area or whether you want to comment on it, but we are going to be discussing it at length this morning on the programme. Dr. O'Connor, is it sustainable for the schools to reopen next Monday? Is it doable? Is it safe? Well, we have three priorities uh, with this um, in dealing with this pandemic. One was to protect our, our, our elderly citizens that are medically vulnerable. The second was to protect our hospitals so that our hospitals will be there, not just to deal with COVID, but all the non-COVID stuff that I've mentioned, you know, the heart attacks, the strokes, the, the accidents, the, the major operations. And the third one was actually to try to keep 
uh, our education systems going so that our, our, our younger children, our older children and our universities continue, could continue because education is so important. Socialisation um, of our children is so important. And we know there have been massive anxiety levels in this population as well. The international evidence to date uh, and the evidence in Ireland so far has been uh, that the um, the schools themselves, particularly in the younger age groups, uh, are not a major source of transmission uh, of COVID. Mm. Um, but ultimately, it would be up to the government. I think they've put a pause in for, a few, for, 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 for this week. But what I would say to people out there, the reason they've done this is to uh, have children not mixing so if people are going to be having play dates and cousins staying together and you're going to see groups of teenagers hanging out together, well, then they'd actually be better off in a controlled environment in a school. Then again, you have the whole stay-at-home message, which you've been reiterating to me this morning yeah. and everybody has over the weekend. Stay at home. But if you've got to go do a school run, maybe two and three school runs in a day, you're not staying at home. No, but you're you're in a, you're you're going in a car and you're collecting your your kids. You know, it's it's it stay at home. Uh, it's staying apart. If you're at the school gate, you're staying well apart. You're not standing around uh, chatting to other parents at the school. So it, it is possible to do that. And we've been doing this now for months. And um, children have been back at school. Parents have have been doing it. The teachers have been doing a trojan and an amazing job at this. But ultimately, that is a decision uh, for the government mm. as to what they're going to decide is in the best interests of our children. Okay. Finally, and in the midst of all this terrible news that we've had over the past couple of weeks, we've had the arrival of the first vaccine. The second vaccine, we we hope, will be approved very very soon, and already the rollout is happening. It's going to be slow. How long do you think, Dr. No- Dr. O'Connor, before I can walk to a clinic and go, can I have a vaccine, please? Mm-hmm. An ordinary, healthy gentleman like myself. Yeah, well, it, there, there's a prioritisation um, uh, grouping that has been there, and this is all about supply. Um, uh, you know, we have to get a, a, a supply of vaccine into this country. There are several different vaccines. It's probably the third vaccine that's going to come into the country, which is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is more similar in a way to the to the to the flu vaccine in that it stays stable in a normal fridge. So that it's not subject to the same timelines um, as as the first two types of vaccines that are coming in there, uh, and uh, so I can't put an actual time frame on it. But what we're doing is we're starting with the prioritisation listing. It's already starting to be rolled out in our uh, nursing homes, uh, long term care facilities to everybody over sixty five, including the staff there, and also to our frontline healthcare, healthcare workers. Um, so we'll start there and we'll continue to move down. But uh, the um, the government has made a, com- a, a commitment and the head of the task force has made a, co- a commitment and the HSE have made a commitment that there will be no vaccine lying around in fridges centrally. Mm. It, it will be um, and we are going to be um, mobilising and utilising that vaccine as quickly as we can uh, because that is that is the way out of this pandemic. But in the meantime, because it's probably going to take, I mean, the timeline that's been set is to the end of August before yeah. it will be possible to offer everyone in this country. Hopefully, you know, all things going well, vaccine supply, uh, workforce being able to divert. Because remember, it's the same workforce is going to be actually giving that vaccine as the workforce that has to cope with all of the people that are currently sick with COVID. Yeah. So the sooner we can get the numbers back down 
um, we get our vaccine supply and we can we can shift the workforce towards vaccinating uh, uh, the better. Okay, listen, I'll leave you there for today, Dr. O'Connor. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Here's hoping that we can get it back under control. The, the strong message to people from you and from your colleagues, though, is stay at home. Absolutely. All right, thank you very much for your time this morning. Dr. Nula O'Connor, Irish College of General Practitioners, COVID-19 lead, and, of course, a Cork GP. 1850 This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, we go back to COVID-19 and all the various changes and things are happening in, in the fullness of time because we'll also be talking about the schools and whether or not they can go back next Monday. The ASTI, I've uh, been speaking to there, and Piggott, they're not sure. They're not sure at all. Uh, and there's a meeting on later today involving all the various stakeholders. I know, I hate that word, but listen, that's the word they use. So we'll be getting to that in a while. But this time last year, uh, we were talking had been talking before Christmas 2019 and right into the new year of 2020 about a spate of vandalism at Kilcully Graveyard where, very upsettingly, uh, graves and headstones and other such uh, memorial items, shall we say, were, were damaged by, by vandals. And, and it led to uh, protest meetings, it led to, to groups meeting to know what can be done about it, how can we get this place better looked after. I attended one of those meetings actually very early in 2020 uh, to get the feeling from uh, the, the locals and, the, and the, the people whose whose graves and property had been vandalised. Among them was Laura, who joins me now. Laura, good morning. Good morning, Peach. How are you? Good, good. It still isn't sorted out properly, is it? No. So um, uh, you did attend one of the meetings. At that meeting, um, we... Um, mentioned the research that we did um, uh, PJ, I believe you got a copy of it as well um, that uh, in 2013 the, the City Hall passed the motion That's right. um, for the CCTV and voiceover um, they failed in their duty there, the, if that was installed, the extent of that damage would have not got as far as nearly 20,000. Just for the benefit so, of the listeners I guess Laura, what happened was you came up with a report dating back to 2013 in which mm-hmm. it was stated in the council that they would put in proper CCTV. They didn't. No, and it was to be uh, connected to um, a guard station and a voiceover. So basically, um, PJ, we, we now know that the person who did this went back on several occasions um, and done this. He suffered uh, mental health issues. So our, um, our belief and it is everybody and the family's belief that if the CTV was installed, he would have been caught on the first or second occasion. The guards would have went in and caught him, you know. So um, the City Hall failed miserably, miserably mm. on this. Um, has there not been the- some CCTV put in now, Laura? Oh, there has. There has now. But it, it was like that was it was to be put in in 2013. Their years too late. They waited till all the damage was done and, and, you know, it's too late now. The damage, their families have to pick up a bill now for nearly €20,000. And as you know, um, the senators that was at the meeting um, told us money wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. That every, the 32 councillors would uh, donate their ward funds. Uh, that didn't happen. There was only nine 
Um, and most of them didn't give the 500, not complaining about it because it's up to themselves what they gave. But we've under 4,000 uh, euro in the bank. Yeah. Now, if I split that between um, the, the, all the families, they're only getting 120 odd euro each. There's 20, nearly 20,000 euro worth of damage. So um, the Kilcully Action Group have now instructed a solicitor to act on behalf of the infect, affected families. We've done everything possible to not go this route. Mm. We've given the City Hall every opportunity to come back and, um, uh, you know, give the funding. Um, is there an insurance policy covering the, the cemetery that could help? There is, if you fall or, you know, things like that, but it's not there for specifically for somebody's, you know, grave. That would be down to yourself. But the problem is, is that... Um, our ground, our legal ground, is that if the CTV was installed back in 2013, this person wouldn't have got or came back on several occasions to do the extent of damage that he did. Hmm. Now, the security arrangements that are there now, uh, mm-hmm. are you happy with those? Well, um, we are, and we aren't. You see, when we came out with this, PJ, when we came out with the motion, um I, I gave you the, the paperwork to that. They, you know, they didn't want to know us anymore, to be honest. We were, there was one senator that kept in contact and that would be McNugent. He helped us all the way and stuff. But other than that, we were, we were baiting our heads off walls. They were putting it down to feuds. They didn't want to know us because of this and because of that, because they, they failed in their duty of care. Mm. They didn't want to know us because we caught them out in it. Mm. You know? Did they ever explain? why they took the decision in 2013 and then never followed through on it? I think at the time in the meeting when we did come out with it, there was one person said he felt at the time that the security wasn't needed. But um, in, in, in the minutes, there's proof that there was criminal activity going on out there. There was um, uh, ornaments being robbed. There was people in there drinking, it was necessary to have it. Now, the other two graveyards in the south side, I believe, got that upgrade, yeah. but on the north side, never got it. So, basically, it was down to, oh, they're the north side again, so they didn't need it. And at the end of the day, we did, because there's 20,000 euro. I have families asking me when they can repair their loved one's headstones because senators stood at the top table and told them there was no problem with the money. You yeah. know what I mean? So we have no other... We've tried everything. We've mm. no other uh, um, way to go, only go the legal route now. So I've been, myself and the rest of the group have instructed a solicitor now to act on their behalf. We will fight this to the bitter end. And do you mind my asking, Laura, who's going to, who's going to pay for the solicitor? Um, well, it's a no and no fee at the moment, you Good. know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. And uh, there were some rumours at the weekend after your post on Facebook, for example, mm-hmm. that... Um, you, you might there might be protests starting yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. The the, the affected families themselves um, wants to go back in to the city hall and protest because um, just because um, everyone in Kilcully can't speak for themselves, they're not being forgotten about. You know, and I know it's the year down the line and COVID affected it. And yeah, because you, you can't protest in the middle of COVID like that's no, the problem. No, no, we can't, and it won't it won't happen. But it it. it the, the route that the Kilcully Action Group are taking at the moment is the legal proceedings. We will name and shame everybody that's on that 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 that, that page. Remember those elections. I know it's another three or four years away, but we won't forget this. The North Side won't forget this. Okay. You know what I mean? And everybody that's on that will knock at our doors for votes. 
You know what I mean? And they just won't get them. They just won't get them because at the end of the day, it could have been anyone's family. It could have been their own loved ones that they, they could have gone out and the graves were damaged, you know? Okay. We right. won't forget it and we're going the legal route and like we tried every opportunity to sort us. Now if the City Hall just want to get back to us and sit down with us, then we're willing to do it. But at the moment it's looking like we have to go the legal route. They're not they're not meeting us halfway at all at all. All right. Laura, we will follow it with interest as we have since the start and, Thank you and very much, wherever PJ. it goes. And you know you're always pushing an open door here if you need to appeal for anything. Thank you very much, uh, PJ. Thank you. Not at all. Thank- that's uh, Laura Carey, one of the families affected by that spate of vandalism, this time last year and into uh, 2020. And as, as she said, they are still out of pocket because of the damage done to their property up there and no one seems to be willing to compensate them for it. They've begun legal action. We will see where it goes. I'm sure it's a story we'll return to in the course of 2020. Just had some comments uh, before I go to a break with regard to the COVID-19 situation and the numbers. And remember, I haven't actually done the COVID numbers for Cork yet for you. I'll, I'll hold them back now to maybe after the 10 o'clock news, but they are scary. I don't mind telling you. Scary. Uh, but Kate says, going on my five-kilometre walk, I might as well have been on Patrick Street. People are being hemmed into areas too small. Let them travel out a bit. Also, they should open the garden centres. It's very hard on people's mental health if they have nothing to do, particularly old people. Well, Kate, the, the shutting down of business is part of keeping people at home. People are supposed to stay at home, and if too many businesses like garden centres are open, they're just going to go out, which kind of defeats the purpose. Uh, Paul on Band, or John Paul on Bandon Road says, I think if you bring in the army to stop the gathering, that the cases might come down. Well, the people have been saying for months that the army should be on the streets making sure people stay at home. It hasn't happened yet, though. Kevin says on Twitter, looking at the ages of the cases, uh, 36 years is the median age. Now, those are parents. If we're supposed to take this seriously, then schools, factories, etc., everything that isn't essential has to stop for a short period. Otherwise, we're just paying lip service. I I am wondering what listeners think with regard to the schools reopening uh, next week. The plan is that schools will reopen Next Monday morning, the 11th of January, speaking with Dr. O'Connor from the general practitioners there a little while back, she said, well, that is still one of the priorities to get the schools open. Not necessarily her area of expertise, but they'll be led by the public health advice that the government really have a job to do here, and that is make a decision and make it quickly and explain it and be able to stand over it. Norma Foley hasn't opened her mouth, I'd say, to say Happy Christmas. Like, we haven't heard a word from the Minister of Education in the last few days. Uh, the Taoiseach is still determined, and the Minister of Health still determined, to get the schools open. But the minister responsible for the schools is, uh, shall we say, uh, conspicuous in her absence from any kind of comment. Anyway, we will come back to it. Uh, but next, organ donation. Living organ donation. Would you give an organ, would you give a kidney, for example, one of your kidneys, to a loved one? That next, 1857-15996. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show, The Opinion Live with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. So we've talked many times about organ donation on the show, people's attitudes to a change over the years. Opt in, opt out. I've always said my... 
instructions to everyone around me is, listen, if I'm dead, take it. You know, I'm not using it anymore. If it works, take it, give it to someone who needs it. That, that's my own personal view on organ donation, and, and always have been. But would you do a living donation, i.e., take it, an organ from a living person, give it to another person? That's a whole different side of this. Joe Moynihan, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Joe, you got a kidney from your sister. How did that come about? That's right, yeah. Um, well, it's kind of a long story, and I know you haven't got a whole lot of time, but the brief version, I guess, is um, I was diagnosed, I'm 60 now this year, but I was diagnosed with um, polycystic kidneys in when I was 33, so that was 2007. Uh, sorry, no, further back now, but don't mind that. Um, I discovered I had the condition, it was hereditary, and my mother had it, she was a corp woman, and she died at 48 with her condition. So I thought that was going to be my future. Um, and when I was sent up to CUH for my different tests and so on and, and uh, to figure out what they could do for me, um, dialysis was the only answer at that time. Hmm. There was a mention back then of um, a live donation, and I wasn't really that keen on that because the whole idea of somebody else you know, going uh, for surgery for me didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me because the risks in my head uh, seemed very high. But my family decided, I, I'm fortunate, I have a lot of siblings, there were seven of us in the family, um, they decided to go off and get tested anyway. Yeah. Uh, and as it turned out, I was in the very privileged position that of the seven who went for testing, four of them were good matches. Wow. And one of them was a perfect match, yeah. what they call a full house match. So um, they eventually came to me, of course, said they had done all this and Everton was ready to go. So I spoke to my nephrologist and he said, this is great, this is what you should do. So I went ahead and in 2009, April 2009, I had the transplant and my sister and I went into Beaumont and went through the process mm-hmm. and everything worked out perfectly, thank God. And I haven't looked back since and I've been just so busy. My life has been so busy and I, you know, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing right now without that particular um, intervention. Obviously, a transplant is, is a major surgery and as the recipient, you have a certain recovery to go through. But your sister, what, it's obviously major surgery for her too and presumably a, a change in her life. Absolutely, and I had kind of read up on it around that time and I learned that it's actually almost a bigger, op- in fact, it is a bigger operation for the donor. So that, that was something I was kind of concerned about um, because, you know, taking a kidney out is more difficult than putting a kidney in, so to speak. Mm. Um, but so I was out of the hospital before my sister. Uh, that wasn't easy, I can tell you. But a couple of days later, of course, she was um, turned out and uh, she never looked back either. And she, thank goodness again, is in perfect health at the minute. And uh, we obviously have a very kind of a strong connection as a result of what we've been through. It's not something that thank you will ever cover, is it, Joe? Not at all, no. And I remember Mary said, Mary, my sister, she said to me um, before the operation, the last thing she said to me, in fact, before we were kind of separated and sent off down for our surgeries, she said, I don't want to hear the word thank you from you, she said. (laughs) Now, with the best intention, you know, because this is what she wants to do. And all of my siblings felt the same way in terms of their um, interest in, in doing the same thing. And it was just that struck me that, that, you know, when she said that, I don't want to hear even thank you from you because this is something we have to do. Yeah. It just has to be done. And she was so right because, like I said, both of us are absolutely flying ever since. And, and are you on uh, anti-rejection drugs now for the rest of your life? Is, is I that... am indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's something you get used to, PJ, very like quickly. What, what kind know? of, do you, do, you, how many, do you take tablets? What is it? I take tablets, yeah, three times a day. Okay. Um, at first it's an inconvenience because I wasn't on any medication before that. Um, but I got used very quickly, and now it's just part of my routine. I have three alarms set on my phone, 
And um, I just kind of get on with that, and that's the way it has to be. But it's not a problem. Now, I know in COVID times, that's a bit of a challenge because being mm. immunosuppressed, you know, has implications. I mean, yeah. it means I can't go into work, for example, because the uh, the Midmark people wouldn't let me go back in. I work in UCC. Yeah. And uh, so I'm working from home, but that's that's going fine. I'm conducting all of my lectures online and yeah. doing all of the office work and so on here at my house. So it's, it's working perfectly from that right. point of view. I'm going to bring in Frances, um, your wife. Uh, Frances, yes. good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Good. Now, you also gave a kidney. To whom? I gave kidney to my daughter, Karen. Karen in, uh, was diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease, same as her dad, uh, yeah. about 10 years ago. Right. And uh, we kind of had it in our heads that she'd be in her late 40s, maybe by the time she'd need a kidney. But um, in Karen's case, she actually needed a kidney last year. So I know 2020 was an awful year for everybody, but I have to say for our household, it was a great year because in January of 2020, on the 20th of January, I gave Karen a kidney. So for us, it was a great year. How, how big is that to recover from as a surgery. As Joe said there, the doctors will tell you taking a kidney out safely is harder than putting one in. So so how did it affect you, surgery-wise? Um, well, I have to say, I, I suppose it, overall it probably took about three months to recover fully, both physically and mentally from it. But I have to say, the you know the the, 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 the care and the attention that you get in Beaumont Hospital from the surgeons and the nursing staff is absolutely second to none. The pain management is amazing. And to think that we went into the hospital on the 19th of January. Surgery was on the 20th of January. And I walked out on Friday, the 24th of January, and I was only on paracetamol for pain relief. So that's kind that's of gives an indication. It gives an indication of how, how the surgery has progressed, even mm. since Joe's sister Mary gave him um, the kidney sort of 11 years ago. It's just amazing. The, 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 the were, were you all cocooning like Billy O then throughout 2020? Well, to be honest, I wasn't as much, I suppose. I was the one who was in and out of town doing the shopping because we live in the country, so it's not that bad. But we did we did mind ourselves and we have been taking great care of ourselves. And in Karen's case, she's literally been cocooning since January of last year because she was three months post-surgery when the lockdown came. So then she had to cocoon even further. And then we had a kind of a respite for July and August. We were able to kind of see each other. Yeah. And um, then she had to cocoon again in Dublin, where she lives with her boyfriend. And um, But she did come down for Christmas, and she's still at home with us, so that's great. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Stay there, Joan Francis. Uh, come in, Colin White, who's the National Projects Manager of the Irish Kidney Association. Thank you can never cover th- this kind of a donation. Can it, Colin? Good morning. Um, yeah, it's 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 one of the big challenges when it comes to uh, receiving a transplant is kind of how do you say thank you? And um, having listened to and spoken with uh, transplant recipients for many many years now, I, I think quite often people feel the best way they can say thank you is by living a full and kind of meaningful life, like basically embracing the opportunity that they've been given by their donor. Mm. And um, so we see that uh, very much in in the Irish Kidney Association. Like it's fantastic to hear from Joe there. Um, I've actually done some work with Joe. Um, that like post transplant, he's back at work. Karen is 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 back active uh, as well post her transplant. Like it it highlights that organ donation is not just about keeping people alive. It's about giving them a quality of life, and as I said, giving them that second opportunity. Yeah. How does one get involved? I mean, if you're sitting thinking about it, uh, how does one get involved? 
Well, in terms of living donation, it's um, it's very much it's going to be looking to the family or maybe a, a, a close friend. There has to be some sort of an emotional attachment there. Um, Ireland has not yet got to the point of uh, what's called altruistic living donation, where you just kind of uh, approach the HSE and say, "I want to give a kidney to whoever's the best." Can you for do it? Not yet. You can do it in uh, the UK, and some Irish people have actually uh, gone up to Belfast and have altruistically donated. It's something that uh, there is provision for it in the Human Tissue Bill, which is um, kind of sitting ready for discussion uh, hmm. this year by the by the government. That, is is uh, that the bill that will bring in, for example, opt-out? Uh, yes, that would okay. be the same bill. Yeah. Okay. yeah. How many people are doing living donations now? Now, I mean, we've talked to Joe and to Francis there about their own experience, but is that replicated? Are, are there many people doing it? Well, prior to 2020, we were looking at kind of maybe uh, mid 40s to mid 50s uh, in in numbers annually, like 40, maybe 45 to 55 uh, living donations. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID, the entire kidney transplant program, both living and deceased, yeah. was put on put on pause for uh, a period. So we only had 28 living donations. But um, I think that's testament to, um, I, I suppose, the fortitude of the potential donor, the and the um, the medical team in in, in Beaumont, and then. Like if if the person is obviously outside of Dublin, their own medical teams, like there's this fantastic uh, renal team down in in uh, CUH, and um, that they they did continue the program. Um, now they stopped it when it wasn't safe, and uh, then when they felt that they had a handle back on it again, they restarted the program. And um, again, it's 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 so encouraging to to hear from Francis, and I've heard it from so many others that. Um, the care and attention that they get in Bowman Hospital is, is, is second to none. But lastly, and, and briefly, Colin, would you be worried, uh, the association, in terms of the, the surge that we now see in, in COVID, that you may have to put everything on hold? Uh, yes, extremely concerned. Um, because um, COVID, uh, when, when it kind of hits somebody badly, um, the kidneys are actually uh, one of the organs that can... Uh, be quite damaged uh, by the virus and there's uh, quite a number of people who have required dialysis. Now thankfully it's uh, most frequently just an acute kidney injury where they just require dialysis until their kidneys recover Mm. but um, we're waiting to see kind of what is the, uh, the, the, the final impact in terms of additional people joining dialysis and then in relation to the vaccine um, we're a little bit worried that uh, people on dialysis in particular um, who are extremely uh, at, at, at risk of, um, like you're talking 20 to 25% mortality, uh, people on dialysis getting uh, COVID. Mm. Uh, but yet they're down in the seventh group, like those who are under the age of 65 are down in the seventh uh, group. So we've been working with the National Renal Office uh, in the HSE. The Opinion Live with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Good morning, 1850-715-996. The number to call the text or WhatsApp is 083 
396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. Twitter, of course, at opinionline96. And we have the Cork's 96FM Facebook page. Send us a message there, Market, if you will, for the attention of the Opinion Line. I, I said I'd do these numbers for you in the first hour, and I didn't get around to it. Um, but looking at the official hub figures this morning. Now, the hub has a, a bit of a warning on it at the moment, uh, suggesting that its figures may not be 100% accurate. But <clears throat> they did update last night with new ones. So I'm assuming that the hub numbers are accurate as of this morning. So today is the 4th of January. And in the last 14 days, this is how we've been doing it on the show for the last number of months. We look at the case numbers for the last 14 days. So in Cork, over the last 14 days, there has been 2,498 cases. I'll read that again. 2,498 cases in Cork or infections in Cork in the last 14 days. That's a 100,000 population figure of about 499, give or take 500 by the shouting. That's on the 4th of January. Let us go back to the 4th of December, one month ago. 234 was our 14-day figure. In fact, I think I remember at the time reading out the figures for you on the program and looking at it and looking at how it was going. And 234 was what we had on the 4th of December, which was a 100k incidence of 47 cases. Now I went back, let's go forward again. Go forward to the 21st of December, which is two weeks ago today. 455 was the number then. So we doubled between the 4th and the 21st. Since the 21st, it has increased five-fold to today's figure. And in the past month, the numbers have gone up tenfold from 234 on the 4th of December to 2,498 on the 4th of January. Those numbers are stark, really, really stark. And as we heard earlier on this morning, the chances are that they will go up further before they go down. Now, there was a message there, I think. I saw it in from Lillian uh, in Mahan, who was very, very angry, um, even too angry to come on air. She said she's furious that the public is being blamed yet again. She wants the politicians to get off their arses and get on with getting the vaccine sorted for everyone. Well, the doctors are telling us, you know, if you went out and you, and you got into a risky situation and people got COVID, then you surely did play a part in it. You know, we all have a job to do here. I'm almost regretting now. I went out to dinner twice before Christmas in the same place, and always with just one other person. But I'm almost regretting it now. And even though we were so, so careful, and thankfully, thankfully, uh, there are no cases in my family or anyone close to me that I know. But, you know, should we perhaps not have done that? You know? Uh, and we, we, we have to just literally stay at home right now. And, okay, Lillian, the politicians may have work to do, and indeed I guess they do. We have to get that vaccine out and get it out faster and get plenty of it out there. 1850-715-996. Now, this day week, the schools are due to go back. It was to be Wednesday, the 6th, but they've been put back now until this day week, the 11th. Already, the soundings are out there that that won't happen either. Uh, we'll be talking uh, later in the hour, hopefully, with Professor Luke O'Neill. I'll get his view on it 
uh, we asked the GPs this morning on their view that they don't really want to make a make a call on it, but I think you get the sense listening to them that they're not too happy about the idea. The Minister for Education is nowhere to be found. The Minister for Health has already sounded doubtful. The Taoiseach uh, is insisting that they will open again next Monday, but realistically, can it happen? I spoke last evening with Anne Piggott, who's the Vice President of the ASTI, and I asked her about that and other things. And thanks for joining us on the opinion line. The government and Neffet insist at this point that they can open the schools safely this day week, Monday the 11th. Do you believe that? Well, I'm not sure if I do, but we have written to the minister on the 23rd of December. And as a consequence to that, we're having a meeting at two o'clock with various stakeholders and representatives from Neffed and the department to discuss our concerns in relation to school safety. Like what kind of concerns do you have? We're very concerned about the variant, the new strain of this virus that seems to transmit very quickly and seems to um, have more of an effect on, on younger people than before. So that's why we wrote the letter originally. Since then, there is a second variant from South Africa. And of course, over the weekend, we're hugely concerned about the, the rampant rising numbers. The figures over the weekend are enormous and, and by all accounts are only going to get bigger before they get smaller. We closed the schools previously in March for smaller numbers. Is, is there a logic to just closing them for the month of January, do you think? Uh, I think one political party has flouted that idea already. Um, I wouldn't necessarily think that we would need to close the schools for a whole month. Uh, but I think at over 3,000 this weekend and talks that it might go to 6,000. I certainly think that um, there is huge concern in those really big numbers, especially if we're dealing with several hundreds of young people who may not even exhibit symptoms or know that they have this virus when they come into schools. Um, in terms of planning to close for such a long period of time, I don't think that would be necessary. I know in March we took huge precautions, but I suppose it was new at that stage and people didn't know what lay ahead. If schools do close, I wouldn't imagine that they would have to close for such a long time. I would certainly hope not. And we've seen in the past that within maybe two weeks, um, numbers tend to go down if everybody in the community behaves up to that point and acts in a fashion whereby the virus might not tend to spread any further. Therein, a comment you made hangs a large question if people behave themselves. Now, in the secondary school sector where your members work and you're dealing with teenagers, and to be fair to them, while the vast majority of them have behaved themselves extremely well since the start, there are those, there are those who haven't. And you can trust people to behave within your school. You can do all you can to make sure that the school is safe. But can you trust them on the way home? Can you trust them on the way to school? Well, let me start by complimenting the way that they have been up to now. They have been very good in school. They've worn their masks. They've done everything that was asked of them. I've even seen teenagers this weekend, um, you know, I was walking in that and they are wearing their masks. And I do think that they are very conscious of what's involved. However, students are kept in some schools in the one classroom all day long because that is medical advice and that's the safest thing to do. When they're in the one room, they're with their friends. They have to take their masks off 
um, tweet. That's obvious. On their way home, they may not wear a mask if they're sitting on a bus. Um, I don't think they mean to do anything wrong. I do know that there is um, zero tolerance on behaviour in schools when students don't wear masks. And I know schools are reacting very, very strongly and are being very careful to do all they can to maintain um, what has to be done. I think a lot of teenagers themselves are very worried that they will pass this virus on to members of their family when they go home or vulnerable relations. So while um, it might be beyond teenagers, I don't think they intentionally set out to do anything wrong. I think they're trying to do their best. But as Leo Varadkar said today, or Sunday, he said that um, where groups gather, the virus will spread, something to that effect. Are you worried at all about the, the large numbers of people and who are asymptomatic and, and walk around with not so much as a temperature or a cough? And, and again, I'm, that's very prevalent among, among young people, we're told. And, you know, not everybody in schools is as healthy as they might be. Are, are you worried that asymptomatic pupils might bring the virus in and pass it on to those who are, who are not quite as, as lucky in health yeah, that has always been a worry. That has been a worry since August and schools have done very well in that they haven't closed since August and we certainly welcome these extra days until the 11th of January until we go back. Um, a lot of people may have the virus and may not know about it at all. Even we've heard of adults in the last few days who've carried the virus and, and haven't known that they've been positive cases. So yes, we are worried and likewise, you mentioned high-risk people in school. There were over 800 high-risk teachers who applied for special accommodations to be made for them and they were refused that so we have that large number of high risk teachers and they were refused there was no no accommodation for them at all just keep going yeah, there were accommodations made for the very high risk teachers but the people in the very high risk category would have been people with like several t- diseases or several illnesses and um, you know very very high risk and there are other teachers with illnesses but they they are at school and they're very worried of course uh, but then you have teachers also who are living with vulnerable people and they're worried as well like it like everybody is in a, in their workplaces and people are even more worried in the last few days with like you said the rampant nature of, of transmission the meeting that you mentioned there at the outset what what are you hoping that meeting will achieve Well, this is going to be a stakeholders meeting and so we're going to have union representatives, management bodies, representatives, members of NEFID and members of the department. Uh, Really, we want assurances that it will be safe in schools and we would like the department and NEFID to consider the implications of the new virus, the rate of transmission and the implications for safety for teachers, students and And all staff. What do you need from that meeting to, to reassure you, Anne? I suppose we need to know that if people are in school on the 11th, that um, this virus will not be transmitting very quickly. Currently, students are sitting a metre apart. Is that enough? Um, they're wearing masks. Is that enough? Will will I don't know, can people do much more by spread out to two metres, in which case then schools wouldn't be able to cater for everybody. So I'm not sure, will it be safe for schools to continue as normal with these huge numbers and with this rampant virus in the community? And if it is a thing that they can't, and if it is the thing that they can't go back next Monday, how prepared are schools up and down the country for blended or online teaching? Okay, so we did online learning in March when there was no warning whatsoever. Schools closed and teachers went home, grabbed their books, their computers, and within a few days um, were trying to teach their students online and got very good at it and did the best under the circumstances. The ASTI has 
been um, calling for all teachers and students to be provided with laptops where possible. In some schools, this has been done in that all teachers have laptops in some schools. In other schools, the laptops are available and need to be distributed. Uh, for students, we would like to prioritise the Leaving Cert and the Junior Cert students and maybe other disadvantaged students in areas um, where they mightn't be able to have a computer at home or maybe broadband issues. Uh, we would like all those pupils to be prioritised if possible. Lastly and briefly, thankfully, within weeks or months anyway, we will have vaccines in the community and people will be getting, already are getting vaccinated. But in the priority groups, do you think, Anne, that teachers and school staff should be bumped up the priority? Because if they're going to keep the education system going, then surely they should be vaccinating those that work within it. Now, we certainly agree that people in nursing homes and healthcare workers certainly need the first vaccines because their lives are hugely at risk. If we go down the this list and there are 15 groups we're group number 11 key workers were much higher in the list and a lot of teachers have expressed to me that they most certainly would have liked to be a higher priority and the reason being if you want teachers in school to feel very safe and to keep schools open it would have been a good idea if we could have been a, a bit further up the list but at the speed at which these vaccines are being distributed it's going to take a long time and I certainly don't see um, all teachers vaccinated before the schools open next so year the list should be reconsidered? Well, that might be a good idea just to keep schools open and to make sure that the Leaving Certs and Junior Certs would be ready for their exams in June. And we would like that to be as normal as possible too. And thank you for your time today. Thanks a million, PJ. Thank you. This is Court's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 0833969696. On Court's 96 FM. Yeah, I think people are genuinely concerned uh, about the safety of schools going back next Monday. I, I I'd like to know from some callers or some listeners or texts, whatever, are you going to send your children back to school next Monday, regardless of the advice? If they're open, will you send your children back next Monday? I'd kind of like to know that. And we'll follow that story during the week. It's, I, I guess there's a cabinet meeting tomorrow, or is it Wednesday, after which time a decision will be made as to what happens. But like I said, the Minister of Education is conspicuous by her silence. And there isn't really much else coming from, from anywhere else. Yeah, I have a parent came to us on WhatsApp. She said, uh, hold on. I'll try and get back to that page in a second, guys. Let us go to the South Dock, because I suppose they all tie in together, uh, all these various items. We still have no South Dock on the north side of Cork City. And we were covering this one in, in the back end of 2020 with Thomas Gould of Sinn Féin. And, and subsequently, it emerged that... Outstock appeared to have no intention whatsoever of reopening the Sunbeam Centre, even though the HSE wants them to do so and has told them to do so. So there's a kind of a butting of heads going on between South Dock and the HSE. Willie, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Willie, how vital is it? I mean, I know you're up there on the north side. If you had to bring someone to South Dock right now, how much of an ordeal is it for you to do that? It's unbelievable, PJ, because I have a mother and I lives across the road from me, you know. And she's elderly, she's in over her 70s, middle yeah. 70s. And if she gets sick, like, she has to be either shifted to the, the Mercy Hospital, CUH, or she has to ring the, 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 the South Side, for South Dock and the South Side, to give her medication. 
How far are you from where the one used to be in the Sunbeam? I'm only just up the hill. I'm only just up the hill from it, from the Sunbeam. Yeah. On the north side. I mean, north all my life. But I'm saying that there's a lot of people on the north side, like, get sick. And if you haven't transported either for people to bring you to the hospital for you, that's another uh, stigma. Yeah. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. No, I'd be honest. Yeah. Like if you, if you had to get your mother-in-law to South Dock now, or, well, obviously you make the call. We all know the drill at this stage. You, right. you make the call to them. Uh, the nurse rings you back. They, they chat yeah. with you over the phone, and then they make a decision whether you need to see a doctor or not. Yeah. Like, if you had to get your mother-in-law to South Dock today, for example, how would you go about it? I'd have to use her care to bring her up. Oh. I'd have to use her care. And I'm saying that, PJ, I have a daughter living with me and her friend. And she, my daughter was sick, she had a heavy, she had a bad head cold, right? Mm. But we got the medication for her anyway, right? She took it, and thank God it cleared. But I'm saying that, if that was more serious, we'd say if it was a bit of coronavirus, I'd have to run her to the hospital. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Thomas Gulo, in fairness to him, he is fighting in the, in the dial about this. You know, Michal Merthe didn't mention something that he was going to look into it, Right? He did hmm. make a statement like that. Just uh, looking into it. No, it is a disgrace. We have no South Dock on the north side of the city. Everything is over on the south side. Hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I'm sure if if there was none on the south side and everything was on the north side, I think people would be equally as as annoyed about it. More, moreover, when the HSE has told South Dock, and, and we established this before Christmas, the, the, the HSE wants South Dock to reopen there. Yeah, and was, where, 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 where's the stoppage then? Who's actually blocking it from opening? Yeah. Who, who, yeah have, who, have the, who have the right or who have the law to, to open that? That raises the hand and says, yeah, we reopen that. Now, your people out in Blarney and Tower, done a more than places right. like that. Yeah. I done a lot they of come in there too, yeah. yeah. Fishing and uh, hunting up them directions, right? Look at the situation they're in if someone is sick because so dark in the sunbeam was fierce, handy for them to come in. I've been down there many a time with my own child. I've seen yeah. people like that from Blairney in there with their kids. Young babies now, they were very sick. And mm. we say up to the age of about 10 kids. Yeah. Well, it's only yeah, 10 minutes in the crazy. road from Blarney, you know. What? It's only 10 minutes in the road from Blarney. That's what I mean. But uh, what I'm saying, if that's with that close, they'd have to go to the south side. If that one was open, that's a long trip. Yeah. They're going through the cities. PJ, it's only common sense. It doesn't take a brain surgeon. Oh, so no, dark. it doesn't. So dark yeah. on, on the north side, that's in the something that's, and especially with the pandemic we have now and the raising cases, it's even more essential now that it's opened. Okay. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Will you leave it there? Let's bring back in. You, you mentioned him in the course of the conversation, uh, Sinn Féin TD, Thomas Gould. Thomas, good yeah. morning to you. Good morning, PJ. And listen to you to yourself, everyone right. in 86, and all your listeners. And to you, and thank you. Thomas, you've been raising this on the programme for the last number of months, and, and we, we, we did find out before Christmas that there was actually a, a head-to-head going on between the HSE and South Dock with regard to the provision of a service on the north side. Have you, can we add any more to that now? Well, would you believe, you know, PJ, we're back in the office today. No, well, we're back walking today. Uh, I was just on the phone this morning to Ken Weldon, you know, my secretary in Shannon Street. Uh, just before Christmas, I got an email from the teacher's office. Uh, as your last listener said there, um, I got a commitment in the Doyle the, the week before the Doyle shut down that the Minister for Health would give me an update on when South Dock Blackpool would be reopening. That never happened. On the 18th of December, I contacted the, the teacher's office and... Um, uh, the HSC and South Dock again to find out and no response. Now, the teacher's office gave me an email saying that they received my email and they, they would be back to me in due course. But, PJ, this is, this is unbelievable what's happening here now. Mm. The HSC told South Dock in September, like, PJ, I suppose just to pick it back, when they closed these South Dock in March, I raised the issue with the then minister and I was told by the Minister on the HSE that this was over COVID and it was only a temporary closure. Now, people told me, and I have to be careful what I'm saying, but people said to me, Thomas, they're going to try to close Blackpool. They're going to use a COVID as an excuse. And yeah. here we are now, 10 months later, Blackpool is still closed and <laughs> South Dock are getting £7 million a year to provide the service in Cork and Kerry and they're in breach of the service contract and I'm going to be asking. Are, are they contractually? Let's, let's, uh, are they contractually obliged, in your understanding at least? Are they contractually obliged to provide a service on the north side? Yes, they are, and the HSC have told Sota from a freedom of information request that I put in. The correspondence shows that HSC told Sota to reopen. That they told them that the closure is actually a health risk to the people of Cork, especially the North Side. And it also told them that by keeping Blackpool closed, and this is in the documents I got, that it will force more people into the CUH and other hospitals, which is something they don't want at this time. Now, that letter was sent in September and October to South Dock. Here we are now, and PJ, I'm listening to you this morning, describing 
the numbers and the amount of cases of COVID that we have. Mm. And people are being driven into hospitals. Like, at, at the weekend, the, H, the CUH said that they don't want people coming out. They want them to go to their GPs. Well, if you're living on the north side of the city, you have no GP out of our service. And you're either being going to Southdock or you're being sent out to the CUH or the Mercy. And, and, and as Willie said there, and you said it to me previously, we're not just talking about Blackpool, Farrenree, Holly Hill, you know, up, up around that, that, those areas, Mayfield. We're talking about Tower, Blarney, Glenmire. Yeah, out to Whitechurch, Carrigdefer, all these areas. So when we talk about the north side, when I speak about the north side, I mean Cock North Central, the whole, that side of the constituency. Like, like PJ... We're in the middle of a public health pandemic. We're at the worst numbers that we've been at since it started. And you have this group, you have this private company refusing to do their job. They need, people need to see doctors out of hours. And these people, and like this morning, just to let your listeners know, this morning, no. Have you been able to find out, I know you did an FOI with regard to their obligations, have you been able to find out what South Dock have said to HSE? They told them no. They told them they carried out a study and that it's better if they run it all out of Kinsale Road. And the HSE wrote back to South Dock and they said there was no proof that that's correct and that they, from, from the HSE's point of view, if South Dock is only out in the Kinsale Road, it will drive more people to hospitals. And that's in the correspondence. I know PJ this morning, I contacted the T-shirt's office, Steve, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, the HSC, and South Dock, to, uh, looking for an answer because people need the uh, South Dock open. And PJ, just to let people know, I couldn't contact South Dock by phone or by letter. I had to send them registered letters to prove that they got okay. it so I could get a response. Well, they haven't issued any uh, statement on, on their side of the story publicly, not as far as I've seen or can read anyway, so we kind of have to wait and see what they say. But there seems to be some kind of a, a certainly a, head, a head-on collision between themselves and, and the HSE. Who needs to stand up and, and do their job here, Thomas, as it were, b- b- politically. Well, Stephen is this Donnelly, a job for Stephen Donnelly or is it Michal Martin himself? Well, I asked Michal Martin, and like, I made a point to Michal, I'm after raising this with the T-shirt three times personally, you know, face to face in the dial. I'm after raising it, I think this is seven or eight times on the chamber, uh, with either the Minister for Health or different ministers on the T-shirt. Like, th- this is this is a health issue for the whole of Cork. Like when I speak here, I speak about the north side and the wider area, but it also affects because more and more people now are going out to the Kinsale Road, and you're listening to people talking about uh, people congregating in numbers and the spread of the virus. We're sending more and more people out to the one south dock. Mm. No, yeah. no matter what way you walk around PJ, right? The more people you send anywhere, the, inc- the increase in risk that you have. We need to see Blackpool open up again. We need it to spread out. We need people to be safe. And we need South to do their job. OK, leave it there for today, Thomas. Thank you very much. That's Thomas Gould, Sinn Féin TD for Cork North Centre. Again, a story I expect us to be following on the opinion line right into 2021. To be clear here, the HSE have told South Dock, reopen 
the north side center. South Dock have simply said no. Who is in charge here? 1857-15996. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Some of your comments coming in. Carlos, I think the government is rolling the vaccine out slowly because they're not guaranteed a second dose. So they're not sure if they should hold the current stock to keep the second jab. Well, there's supposed to be, if you're to believe Stephen Donnelly, there'll be 40,000 doses a week arriving here within the next week or two. I also heard people saying we should be hearing how many vaccines have been delivered. I actually heard a figure this morning. I heard, for example, that about 2,000 healthcare staff have already had a vaccine and there was something like 500 of them are, are in CUH. So, and I think I did hear uh, either Ronan Glynn or Tony Holohan say at the weekend that they will be reporting from time to time how many vaccines have been rolled out. But let's go to the vaccine issue itself. And because in the middle of all of this, when the numbers are so terrible and so scary, and they are, let's not put another word on it. It is scary, the, the level of infection out there at the moment. We also know that the vaccines are coming on stream. Pfizer is already approved and is on the market here. The next one, I think, will be Moderna. And then there's the Oxford AstraZeneca. Uh, let us catch up a little bit on the science and a little bit on where we might be going with vaccines with Professor Luke O'Neill. Luke, good morning to you. Good morning, Peter. How's it going? Good. Good to talk to you again. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Well, in, in the midst of all the bad news about infections, how, am, how, how good is all the news about vaccines? It's really good, PJ Steele. I mean, it's fantastic in many ways. We're, we're in a very difficult phase. The analogy I'm using is like at, the, at, at the bottom of a very dark pit in a way at the moment. The light is the vaccines, no doubt about it. And we're going to see more and more vaccine approvals as the weeks go by. And one projection is by the time we get to May, there'll be as many as five vaccines approved for use in Europe, in, including in Ireland, you know. So it's just a question of sticking it out for the moment and then making sure we get the right supply of vaccines, as you've just been saying. The key thing now is, is logistics, really. Like, how does it work? The European agency has to approve the vaccine, and, and there's a ton and a half paperwork, as I'm sure someone you know well, Professor Kingston Mills was telling me before Christmas. There's a ton and a half of paperwork to go along with that approval. So where are we with the paperwork, say, for AstraZeneca and, and Moderna with regards to Europe? Yeah, we know those things. I mean, we know on the 6th of January, which is, what, two days' time, they'll, they'll probably approve the Moderna vaccine. Now, immediately we double supply then because the EU has ordered loads of doses from Moderna as well. And then we get our divvy from that. We get 1.1% of the total based on our population size. So suddenly a second vaccine is now available. And then that's How quickly that's will that come through? That should be pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, remember, they've made millions and millions of doses, these companies already. And it's just a question of getting it into the, into the right place, I suppose, and then shipping it to us. So you'll be optimistic there. At the moment, they're saying we're getting 40,000 doses a week of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for the next few weeks. Now, imagine if we get the same again with uh, Moderna. We've doubled the dose. And then, as you mentioned, the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, that will be approved by the EMA again in the coming weeks. The German Minister for Health, actually, he's saying would the EMA get its finger out and approve that one? So, again, that's the third vaccine. And, again, we can see another say 40, 50,000 doses a week coming in. So it's just a question of time, really, and rolling it out. I think by the time we get to February, 
uh, supply shouldn't be an issue then. And then we, it's a question mm. of deployments and, and getting, getting the vaccine into as many arms as we can and, and as quickly as we can. You, you are the eternal optimist, Luke, which is part of why we enjoy talking to yeah. you all the time. Um, in, in terms of the dosage, we, we know that there's a double dose regime going on here. And already we're hearing from India and UK that they're lengthening the the time between the first dose and the second dose, uh, presumably to get to it, the first dose into more people and get them some level of, of resistance. Yeah. How do you feel about this breaking up of the double dose regime? It's okay if you can be sure of the second dose coming in eventually in the coming weeks. You know, it's a bit like in your car engine, PJ. You know, you're running out of petrol, right? Do you keep going or do you use the tank of petrol in your boot and top up and hope to come to a garage? That kind of thing, you know. So, so it's a bit like, you know, we're hopeful that the supply will continue. So it's really a question about supply. If you stretch it out a bit, you can use up more of the vaccine first dose in people, if you see what I mean, and then the second dose comes in later, you know. So it's really a kind of a question of timing in many ways. The slight Wait, anxiety... Sim- simplify the science for me. Is it that the first injection primes your system yeah. and the second one gives you the, the, the actual immunity? Exactly. That, that's part of it. There's evidence, though, the first injection will give you immunity anyway. And then the question becomes, how long will that last? The second dose, though, is the big boost that really gives you full immunity. But some studies are showing with the AstraZeneca one, for instance, the first dose will give you 60% protection anyway. Now, that's a bit like the yeah. flu vaccine at the moment gives you 60%, you see. So hence, they're taking a slight chance and saying, look, let's wait 12 weeks for the second dose. And you're waiting for the supply levels to go back up again, I suppose, having used your first supply in a way. It, yeah. It's a strange one at the moment, isn't it, to be discussing this in a sense. And it's simply a matter of supply. That, that's the only reason this topic is relevant in a way. The, yeah. Canadian, the Canadians are using up the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine in the hope that the second one comes along and they're confident the second will emerge. Now, now they're saying if you do that, you'll protect 40, 50% of the population quickly then, you know, that kind of idea. And then the second hit comes in and then they're fully protected is the idea. So, so it's a bit nuanced, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Looking to uh, things like the, the variant and the huge numbers at the moment, um, are you personally concerned that the variant can throw the whole thing off kilter? Well, we don't really know how much of this increase in numbers, which, as you just said, Paging, is huge. I mean, nobody expected the numbers to hit the levels right now on a daily basis. Nobody kind of saw that coming. Now, you might have said, look, it was inevitable because people were going to mix and mingle in the, in, the, in, the, in the period before Christmas, and then it would spread like wildfire anyway, you know? Now, the new variant, there's evidence that it's, it's more transmissible. And the question is how much of these increasing numbers are down to the new variant. It doesn't matter at one level because you double down on everything. Remember, you can stop the new variant spread by staying home, hence the directive, you know, to stay apart from each other to stop the new variant spreading. But it's, it is a concern because if it spreads more readily, that means more people get infected and more people get sick. But we still don't fully know if the increase in numbers, how much of that's due to the new variant or due to, uh, you know, people just not, 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 to, not to reducing their contacts in, in, in the to Christmas. A couple of questions are coming in from listeners on the phone, Luke. Uh, previously, we were discussing, I think, with you, there was promising research on mouthwash of all things there was yeah yeah there's, there's a bit of evidence for that but it wouldn't depend on it let's put it that way you know there's a, maybe a slight effect that that might decrease the viral load because remember it's mm. all about the amount of virus that you're releasing when you cough or speak even and there was some evidence the mouthwash might clear the virus from your mouth and upper airways a little bit and therefore the viral load might be less but sadly it wouldn't be depending on that as a key strategy 
Yeah, and, and speaking of coughing, we, we've been told since day one, cough into our elbow, but we have replaced the humble handshake with an elbow bump. So, so is that safe? Is that safe? Well, that's a very good point. Yeah, we often wonder that. Like, why would we be bumping elbows if you've coughed into your elbow? I guess if you cough into your elbow, don't bump elbows. It's probably the best advice. Now, to mind you, if you're wearing a mask, you can cough into your mask, and that traps the virus, you see. But, uh, but certainly, coughing into the elbow is still recommended, and maybe avoid the bumping. Getting back to the, to the vaccine, or to the, yeah, to the vaccine, is there any concern out there that the changes, the different strains, mutations, call them what they will, that they will eventually uh, mutate into something that the vaccine can't deal with? Yeah, there's evidence that the new variant will still be possible to vaccinate against. That's the good news there. So the new variant, you know, the vaccine should work against. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that there's a risk of new mutants, of course. That's a tiny risk, PJ. It's not, it's not keeping us awake at night by any means. But there's still a risk right. of another variant emerging. Now, if that happens, there's a bit of good news there. You can change the Pfizer vaccine quite quickly. It takes about six weeks, it turns out. So let's say a new variant emerges and in the next three, four or five months. And there's some evidence that the current vaccine doesn't work. It could be a six to eight week turnaround time to get another vaccine to pretend against that one, you see. So, so in other words, it, it is a slight concern. We're more worried if a new variant arose that, that makes people sicker, you know, if it's more, you know, more disease causing. That, that's a bigger concern because obviously we don't want that to happen. It's unlikely, though. We feel yeah. that the, vac- the virus isn't changing that quickly to allow that to happen. So, again, we're not that worried about those, those issues. When will we know, or will we know, the 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 effect with regard to inf- infectivity, as in, the, I have my vaccine, so I won't get sick. But how, when will I know whether I'm going to make you sick? Yeah, yeah, there's more evidence now. The Moderna vaccine, for instance, they've said that that might stop you being infectious. So that's good, obviously. It may see more data, but that, that's heading in the right direction. There's no doubt, though, that even if you still get infected, PJ, the level of virus you're emitting is a lot lower anyway, you know, because obviously the immune system is working a bit and limiting the amount of virus. So even if you do get infected, you're less likely to be spreading it, you know, we think. So it's becoming, that's becoming less of a concern as well, I must be saying. I take it it's all been researched furiously in the background. Furious. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, they're still working on these vaccines hugely, remember. One, one thing they're doing at the moment, PG, is they're testing it in children because we're still not, I mean, we were confident it will work in children, but they never did the trial on children. You know, with people over, over 12 were in the trial. Now they're testing under 12s as we speak, you see. So they're doing various things to keep working on this vaccine, you know, to get more and more information about it. It wouldn't surprise me, PG, certainly some of the other vaccines. Uh, the ones that are coming down the track, they're saying they will prevent infectiousness. They're more confident with some of those ones, you know. And you can imagine then, as I say, if we get to, say, April, May, June time, and there's five vaccines available, and let's say two of them definitely stop you spreading it, that's a great position to be in, you know. Yeah. You you mentioned children, and obviously a big topic of discussion this morning, uh, and will be over the next couple of days, is the the schools. Uh, Can they or will they reopen next Monday, do you think? It's a really tough one, isn't it? Because keeping the schools closed will cause massive stress and all kinds of issues for people. So it's a really tough one to call. I, I think that if the numbers keep going up, PG, and the signs are they will, you've got to be really be ready for this. Because, you know, the, the consequences of what happened, let's say, between the 20th and 25th of December, that reads out two weeks later. So we're coming into that phase now, you see. So, so the, the projections are pretty, pretty challenging. The numbers will go up this week. You know, and now if we get to Thursday or Friday... A lot more numbers. I can't see the schools opening. They'll, be, they'll say, look, we're not going to take a chance on that, even though it's low risk, by the way. Schools are not a big source of infection, but there's still a tiny risk that they might 
promote infection. Mm. There's a risk. There's a risk. PJ will go back to the way it was in March for a couple of weeks. You know, for two or three weeks. In other words, yeah. schools stay closed, construction ends, all those things may be in front of us now. It just depends on the numbers in the coming days, really. Can I briefly, be, before I let you go, Luke, ask you about one of the rumours that is put around by, by, by people who just don't genuinely believe in the seriousness of this situation. One of them is that if you're asymptomatic, you're no danger to anybody. Is that utter nonsense? That is nonsense, and it's a really important point. And I think, I think the minister, we've heard this from Leo Racker and, and various people. You have to assume you're infectious. Everybody should assume that they are infectious now. And even if you've no symptoms, you might still be infectious. And we think as much as 40 to 50% of spread of this virus is someone who has the virus on board and they've no symptoms. So you've got to assume that you're infectious. Hence the really important message at the moment, PJ, I know you've been saying it a lot. Stay home the next two or three weeks. Yeah. We, can bring, we, can bring, we can bring this virus under control again and go back to the way it was, mm. you know, in November time. Just, just to nail home. that last point home, Luke, just to nail that last point home with regard to if you're asymptomatic, yeah. it is absolute nonsense to suggest that you're not infectious. Exactly. All the science says that you can be asymptomatic and you could be spreading that virus. That's what the science tells us. Okay. And there's no disputing that now. There's a massive consensus on that one. So it's a very important point to emphasize. Okay. I'm going to leave it there with you for today, Luke. Thanks as always, and we'll speak again on the opinion line. Thank you very much. That's great. Thanks, Lady. All the best. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Yeah, it's a chilly but a gorgeous one out there. It really is beautiful to look at, but it's damn if you stand out there for two seconds, bits of you start freezing. It's very, very cold. Good morning, 185715996. The number, the text to WhatsApp, 083 396 9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. Some comments head over. I'm a mother and an SNA working in a special school in the city. I love going to work, but now with increased levels of COVID in the community, I'm petrified. There's no social distancing as the children don't understand it. We have our masks constantly pulled off, children coughing in your face, constant hand-holding, up-close and personal interaction. How can this be a safe environment when the rest of the population is told to keep two metres apart and limit their contacts? You can see the point. That is the very nature of what this person does. And nothing wrong with any of it. But in the middle of a... In fact, it's the right way to do it. But in the middle of a pandemic, it's, it's dangerous, surely. I'm looking out the window now, says this caller. There are about 20 kids playing on the green. It's no good having them off school if they're all out mixing. I know it's only a minority of parents are allowing them to do this, but it's enough. 1850-715-996. Kieran says, you all talk about schools closing or opening. You can't have people in your house or garden. What about kids leaving their houses and playing with other kids, then coming back into their household? But there anything mentioned that kids can't play with friends. It just doesn't make sense that we must all stay at home, but kids can gather and play for hours. Yesterday on our green, there was at least 15 playing a soccer match for hours. Like kids do. Is that a good or a bad thing? 1850-715-996. Story over the weekend, I watched it on my social media. I, I would say mild consternation at news that strict had sealed this sponsorship deal with Cork GAA. A lot of people, there's an attitude towards Sports Direct, a bit like the attitude towards Amazon. People don't like them because of the people behind them. 
and there was an amount of consternation. I know more about this deal. Dennis Walsh, a journalist with the Sunday Times. Dennis, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Dennis, what exactly has been signed here? What exactly will Sports Direct be doing with Cork? Yeah, uh, PJ, they've, they've, they've agreed with uh, Cork GA, with one Cork, um, a five-year deal um, to bring in... Um, it's €2 million Euro is, the, is the bottom line figure, and there's another €2 million Euro in potential performance bonuses, depending on how Cork perform. Uh, there's X amount for reaching a provincial final, an All-Ireland semi-final. There's a €200,000 bonus for winning an All-Ireland uh, senior title. Um, and so it's uh, an initial three-year deal with an option for another two years. So um, it's been portrayed as a five-year deal um, with, as I say, a baseline figure of, of €2 million. Euro. And is this the, the short sponsor? Will there be a, will, will Sports Direct be on the short? Exactly. Sports Direct will be, will be on the short. And there's also um, a boot deal as well as part of the package uh, for the county board, worth, I think, around €25,000 a year. How did the county board come to knock together a deal with a, a British company? Um, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question, PJ. I, I, we, we had a story in the paper yesterday, but uh, I don't have all the ins and outs of, of, of how mm. it came about for sure. I mean, Sports Direct have dipped their toes in GA sponsorship uh, in recent years. They've, they've done a deal with five different GA clubs, including uh, Glen Rovers uh, in Cork. Um, they have a big, a big uh, outlet in Blackpool. Um, I know a lot of uh, Glen Rovers mm. uh, people would be would work there and certainly shop there and so on. And I know Glen Rovers have been have found them to be really good sponsors, very generous sponsors, and they've had a great mm. relationship with them. So um, as I said to you, um, Sports Direct have been really aggressive, um, PJ, in their expansion in Ireland over the last two or three years, like they, mm. since 2018 especially. Um, all the heating stores have been rebranded, as far as I'm aware, as Sports Direct. Yes, um, the one it, you mentioned in Blackpool was a heating store, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, 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 something similar recently in Middleton. I think there could be as many as five or six Sports Direct shops around the county. Uh, in October, they got planning permission uh, for a major outlet on Patrick Street, uh, where, Eason's currently, um, where Eason's currently is. So they, they have planning permission for, for a big store there. So they're obviously very conscious of um, the Irish market. Um, you know, they mm. would see the GA as... You know, obviously, the most powerful sporting organisation in the country. So, if you want to yeah. get your message out there, if you want to tell people that you're that you're here and that you're selling sports goods, certainly using the GA as a vehicle uh, makes a lot of sense. Okay, all right. Leave it there with you, my um, Dennis. Thank you very much. That's Dennis Walsh, journalist with the Sunday Times. They broke that story. Sports Direct um, taking over as sponsor. Effectively, they are the new Barry's Tea, if you like. Remember the Barry's Tea and the jerseys and all that? So the Sports Direct logo will be on the jerseys and you heard the bonus scheme. A couple of hundred grand to the county board for winning uh, Senior All-Ireland. The deal is there, the deal is done, the deal is signed. I know, as I said, a lot of people over the weekend on social media weren't particularly happy about it. How do you feel? If you're a GAA fan, supporter, I saw one guy, he's a Corkman working in Dublin, he said he would not be buying the new jerseys for so long as Sports Direct were, were involved, which is entirely a matter for himself. Would you be of that feeling, or is it just another company coming in to sponsor the GAA? 1850-715-996. Before I move to a break there, I was looking at my friend uh, Mary Jane, Lamity Jane, uh, over the weekend. She was talking about sizes and buying clothes in, in different sizes. We've talked 
ad nauseum on the opinion line over the years about sizing of clothes and how they never seem to be the same in two shops. And if you find a shop where your sizes work for you, stick with it. And I mentioned myself that at one particular place I buy a lot of my clothes, I find the sizes really suit me. Another chain, and it is a chain, another chain, I buy the same trousers, so it won't go up over, over, over me butt. So if I've got that kind of problem, apparently for women, it's a it's, it's hundred times worse. So uh, we, But Mary Jane has been saying on her Twitter at the weekend that it is improving very much. Uh, we'll talk to her next. 1850 715 This is Cork's Gold Imro award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Cork's 96 FM. Now, Mary Jane, good morning to you and Happy New Year. You posted you? at the weekend. I'm all right. You posted at the weekend some of the screenshots of uh, the grief that you get online. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, <laughs> I'll go I there. I'll, I'll, I'll go there in a minute. Um, some of it decidedly unpleasant. Your poor old thing for having to put up with it. But just to get to where we were mentioning before the break, I've talked many times over sizes and how sizes can differ for men but for women yeah. it's a whole b- different different ball game a 12 is not a 12 is not a 12 That's it. Uh, and um, I've I, had people crying on the air about that yeah it's I suppose like what I would encourage people to do um, and, and I do uh, m- most of my stuff is beauty right but I do a little bit of plus size um, clothing and what I would say to people is to try not to kind of get hung up on the label now when you're online shopping, that's very hard because obviously if you're going to order something that's a 16, when you arrive, you're kind of hoping that it's going to be a 16. So online shopping is a little bit more difficult, but things have gotten so much better. Um, and I suppose from an inclusivity point of view, brands like, you know, the bigger brands like ASOS and Boohoo have plus size models now. You know, there yeah. are kind of bigger role models like Lizzo. Um, who, you know, gets on her Instagram and twerks in a bikini. So it's easier, I suppose, now maybe than it would have been 10 years ago for women to see that you can embrace your appearance no matter what size you are. And it's much easier to... Yeah. to I was talking to Fiona about this. It's much easier now to get clothes in kind of, you know, better sizes for women. And in fact... One of the things that was a massive, massive problem, and I remember the first time I ever um, joined a gym, I would have been about a size, I'd say, probably maybe a big 12, small 14, and I found it very hard to get gym gear. And as I as, yes. as I gained weight and, you know, the middle-aged spread and all that kind of thing came along. Um, but now most brands are, um, you know, being a little bit more size-inclusive. Nike are brilliant. They have every type of thing. And they acknowledge that like bigger people want to work out. So they have running gear, for mm. example, which would have been very, very didn't hard they to put a very, Didn't they put an ad up uh, years ago uh, of a plus-size model wearing their running gear? They got a mixed reaction to it, but most people said, you know what, that's not a bad thing. They did. And you see, what happens is that you get these um, people that, you know, for whatever reason, they think that fat people or people that are overweight or however you curvy, however you want to 
put it, they think that they should not be visible. There are people in this world that think that, you know, unless you conform to a certain aesthetic or a certain size, then you should not be visible. And I remember they got so much grief at the time about um, promoting obesity. And that's what these people will say. But if you're sitting there and you're unhappy with your body, PJ, what you have to have a tracksuit to go and work out in. You have to move. Yeah. That's what yeah. people will tell you. Eat less, move more, you know. So it's, it's a completely illogical thing. And then social media, people don't like seeing confident, happy men and women. And it applies to men as much as women. Um, but I suppose with men, it's always been, you know, he's husky or he's a builder or he plays rugby. But with women, it's just as uh, she's sitting at home eating pizzas, you know, that kind of way. Like I, yeah. I weight train quite intensively three times a week. Yeah. Um, I power, I, I started kind of doing um, one day a week of powerlifting, which is like pretty heavy weightlifting. Um, you know, I walk, if I go for a walk, I don't just go for a walk around the block. You know, I'm bigger. Like I walk probably 10 kilometers at a time. And yeah. like, it, you know, people need to kind of, and I was only talking to somebody recently, it, it's the bias is everywhere right across the board. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're overweight or if, you, if you're unhappy with how you feel, yes, of course you need to do something about it. Yes, you have to look after your heart. But it doesn't mean that those people need to be not represented. And I think personally what happens is that when somebody like me, who's, you know, happy and confident, like another thing I get a lot of the time, this is nothing to do with my weight, is what would you look like without the makeup? Scroll down through my Twitter feed, there's hundreds of photographs of me with no makeup on. I wear makeup <laughs> out of pleasure, not necessity. And it's the yeah. same thing that I, you know, that I wear, that I wear a lovely dress. I wear it out of pleasure, not necessity. Yes, I've got rolls, I've got boobs, I've got a bum. And, you know, and these guys are all, none of these guys are, are proud of themselves, you see, that's the problem. And the primary thing that you get it from, and I love men, I have four brothers, I dad that I absolutely adored, but the, the trolling that you always get, PJ, is nearly 90% of the time always from men. Yeah. You know, yeah. Con- yeah, no, I looked at some of the stuff that you posted over the weekend. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, not only not only did I, did I look at it and think, that is offensive in the extreme why would you say yeah. that to somebody plus the fact that you're a friend of mine i felt angry for you that that yeah, someone do that to you online on you know I now know. at the same time you it, it doesn't do a whole lot of harm to you personally it doesn't bother you very no. much or does it does it like and you know what i know that there are people that come on and say it doesn't bother me and they're you know part of it is bravado i'd lie if i say that i didn't read it and go God, that's a bit harsh. But it's it's literally yeah. that second. And then I, I I get back into my zone and I say, hang on a second now. You put yourself out there. You're, you know, capable. You're strong. You're comp- confident. You're competent. You're good at your job. You do. All, you're a kind person. So, like, some dude sitting in his mom's spare room, you know, eating Cheetos, like, you know, playing whatever game he's playing on his, yeah. you know, that doesn't, like, the opinion of those those kind of guys or girls or whatever do, doesn't bother me. But I had two or three messages yesterday, PJ, and it broke my heart from other women who were like, I wish I could adopt the same attitude. 
one girl messaged me and said that she put up a picture of herself and somebody messaged under it, you need to join a gym and lose weight. I mean, mm. and somebody she'd never spoken to before. It's to- and, and you know, the other thing I want to say, PJ, is if you have a friend or a family member that's overweight, don't keep coming at them with the, you know, I'm a bit worried about you or whatever. That isn't a helpful narrative. You know, it's, it's not a helpful mm. narrative. I go out walking with my friends and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. But that's the other thing. And it's like, you know, I've been chubby since I'm a young girl. As in like, since, you know, I, I hit the, <laughs> the puppy fat just kept coming. And um, like, I do lots of things to, to make myself feel healthy. And I don't, I'm energetic and I don't ever feel bad. And I thank God I'm healthy. But it's just, mm. I suppose, it is like, there is that second where you think, why did he choose to send that to me? But it's more... Mm. I look at it more like, you know, that it's his issue because, you know... Yeah, he, it says more about a, him than it does a, about well, you. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, like, it's like anybody that will, that will, you know, anything that's visible now in, in, in media and in mainstream and social media that, you know, wasn't or isn't the norm is now offensive to people, unfortunately. And then you're going to get the backlash. But I just, you know, I, he's not going to stop me the likes of him is not going to stop me doing what I do. Oh, um, no. I, 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 I absolutely, I absolutely know that. Before I let you go, Mary Jane, I got yes. into a bit of a spat yesterday with someone on Twitter who shall remain nameless. Um, right, I, with I regard to, it, op- I think. yeah, yeah, and uh, you'll know what I'm on about. Uh, yeah. With regard to Operation Transformation, which starts again. Yeah. Now, personally, I hate the program. I hate it. Yeah. I just think it's silly, but. How do you feel about that starting up again every January and people, uh, you know, looking at at, at what goes on on that television? There's a a couple of things at play here, PJ. First of all, I don't like the fact that the people, the leaders, have to come out in cycling shorts and no makeup and, you know, a bra top for the women, which, you you know, they're not, those sports bras are not flattering, you know. Um, those mm. cycling shorts are not flattering and that that to me is a humiliation thing and you've got Catherine Thomas and she's all dolled up or whatever I don't object to the programme in the sense of if if people want to watch it and they t- they find it inspirational to start absolutely um, but I do think there is a very kind of worn out format, format to it now where they mm. go down and the person's in their pajamas and they're going, yes, hooray, I'm on it and whatever. And then they're, mm. you know... But that, that's, you see, that's all, that's all filmed three or four times. It's all agreed to. Oh, and listen, I understand that. And if I was going to sign up for it myself, um, you know, I, I, I was, you know, you, mm. you just, that's what you sign up for to a degree. But I just, like, I, do, I, I think it's, like, I, do, I think it's portraying for, okay, so for me and the gym and, and that, and I was talking to my trainer, Adam, about this. For me, because I said to him, like I said, you know, I was talking to someone and I, go, I come here for mental head, headspace. And he was like, who are you trying to cut? He said, you're not going to Judo Fitness for, for just for your headspace. He said, you're coming here to get stronger as well. You know, he said, like, you yeah. physically want to get stronger. So like that, you've got that kind of element of it, yes. And if it, if, if it kick-started something like that, in somebody that they wanted to be. But I think just a lot of it, you know, watching them struggle 
and stuff. Hmm. It's probably great TV, but for someone like me, I'd be very soft, PJ. And I'd really feel for somebody. Like if I thought, like if I thought that, you know, somebody was videoing me when I'm down trying to pull the weights up off the floor or whatever, I'd, I'd feel very self-conscious. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. how good it is kind of yeah. going forward. Um, and there seems to be, and look, there's loads of people doing different things to try and help their mindset. But as I posted myself on New Year's Day, whether you've got abs or you want kebabs, survive and stay healthy, wear your mask. And, you know, just like go into 2021 and, 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 and try and like just love yourself, you know. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's the message really, you know. There's, there's yeah. nothing else yeah. to say about it. Somebody said to me a long time ago, Mary Jane, when we were discussing the similar subject, said, look, PJ, she said, actually it was a he. He said, PJ, I am very happy in my skin. There's a lot of it, but I'm very happy in it. Yeah. And like, you know, for me, I think the, one of the only things that used to get me down was that I couldn't find nice clothes. So like I always yes. had a, a black pants and a black top. I mean, yes. my friend Michelle always says that to me, Jesus, you're like a one going to a funeral. That has changed now because you can yes. get dresses and you can get... And I often, you'll often see me whinging on Instagram and stuff about, you know, why aren't the necklines a bit lower and why are they putting butterfly tops on everything plus size? Because, you know, there was only one or two plus size shops. Now there's a, there's a lot more selection. And especially for younger girls, like, you know, 15 or 16 year olds that are struggling a bit with their weight, you know, that can't go in and buy it, but you know, a size 12 pants or, you know, whatever. It's, 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 the, the, that's, that for me is the They can be, they can be part of the latest fashion race. Exactly. You know, and if you want a denim jacket or you, you know, you know, all those kind of things are, and you know, the the bigger high street stores now are starting to realise as well that there's money to be made in, like, you know, before you could, if you were getting a plus size thing, it was only a daddery old thing that you'd see like a mother the bride wearing. Now you can be amazing. And like all of the celebrities, we'll say that would be considered plus size, like the, the amazing, like model Ashley Graham, Lizzo, they're yeah. all collaborating now with brands to bring their style to it. So it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's made it's, it very it's real, accessible. It's, it's real people. Real, re, real people are not mannequins in yeah. a window. Mary Jane, always a pleasure. And I'm sure we'll talk many times during 2021. Okay. 2021. Listen, Look after yourself. Mind yourself, PJ. Bye. Take Bye. care and thanks. That's Mary Jane Regan, 1850-715-996. Follow her on Twitter. She, she doesn't hold back on stuff. Glamity Jane on Twitter and on Instagram. 1850-715-996. Yeah, that Operation Transformation, due back, they're promoting the hell out of it now on RT. And I think, really? I hate reality TV anyway, with very, very rare exceptions. It's just silly at this stage, isn't it? 1850-715-996. There was something that we did before um, on this program, and it got a reaction that I didn't expect it brought a smile to people's faces in a way I didn't expect. The idea that you would adopt or get a pet, a hen. Uh, yeah, a hen. Yeah, little cluck cluck. Yeah, hens. <laughs> People are adopting and getting pet hens all over the place. We'll do it shortly. 1850 Gold, Imro award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM.
So we talked previously to Blaheen from Little Hill Animal Rescue about adopting hens. Let's talk to someone who actually did it. Martina, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. You got hens uh, before Christmas. Uh, are they all there cracked up to be? First of all, why did you want to get one? That's an interesting question, actually. Um, we said goodbye to our much-loved family pet, our dog Charlie, in May. He was 14. And uh, we all missed having a pet in the house, but we didn't want the commit of a dog. Uh, we just were aware that it was going to be a long-term commit and, you know, a lot of work. And I'd had an interest in hens anyway. Uh, some friends of mine had kept them over the years. Um, and then my son was chatting to a colleague who had adopted from Little Hill. And he sort of said, Mum, if you're interested, maybe we should look to Little Hill. So we investigated and uh, looked into it and did a bit of research and decided, yep, yeah, we'd go with it, we'd get the hens. So what's it like to have a hen? I mean, what do they do all day? Well, we have five, actually. So we decided to keep them company. We'd have more than one. we get four. And <laughs> we did. And uh, we said we'd get four. And then on the day of the adoption, Little Hill were contacting people to say they needed some extra hens to be taken. So we took a fifth. Um, so we have the five. Now, we're a small suburban garden. Um, we bought a little coop with an, a run extension attached, an enclosed run attached, and that's where our hens live. Um, and they're absolutely fabulous. We knew nothing much about hens. We were even a bit nervous of handling them at the start, but we've had them three weeks now and mm. absolutely fabulous. They're really amazing. So basically do what they, they do... Do they come out? Do they engage with you? Yeah, well, when we got them first for the first couple of days, because they're rescued from a battery and they're not used to being handled, they're actually really, really nervous and they're very stressed. So the first day or two, uh, they were in the coop quite a lot. They didn't really come out much just to have a bit of food. They weren't even sure where their food was, to be honest. Um, but after the first mm. couple of days, they got used to that. Uh, and actually, the first two nights, we had to put them into bed themselves. They didn't know to go to bed. But by day three, once it gets to dark, they're back in the coop themselves. They put themselves in and we just shut the door to keep them in. So basically, yeah, they're, um, they're getting very much used to us. One of them is still very timid. The other four are a bit better. We actually named our five after the cast of Chicken Run. So our very timid hen is Edwina in our house. <laughs> and Edwina is very nervous, very timid. Uh, Ginger is very feisty. She's, uh, you know, as soon as we opened the pen day one, she was off, you know, running across the garden and uh, making a, a quick escape. Mm. Um, and we have Babs and we have uh, yeah, Bunty and we have, uh, sorry, Mac. So we have the five. Martina, this might sound like a silly question, but how the heck can you tell them apart? Well, actually, they do look a little bit different because when they came first, uh, quite a few of the feathers were missing. They were molting. So uh, they did look a little bit different. But we got little plastic leg rings. They don't, they're just little rings that go around their legs, like t attach on. They don't attach to their legs. Right. They're impinging them. So we've put the different colours on so we can tell them. But to be honest, at this point, with the little personalities coming out, um, many hours spent out the window looking at the hens, to be honest, out in the garden with the hens. So we're really enjoying watching them. Um, they're obviously in their pen and we're just keeping an eye. But um, my husband actually discovered... Uh, after the first couple of days, we had some blueberries that were about to go off. So we brought them out and started, started hand-feeding them. So now when we go out, there's a clamour to come over to the, the pen to kind of get the, the blueberries out of our hands and things. And we started to try and just handle them and rub them and just get them used to being handled. Um, so they're, they're very friendly. I take, they it that they're, I take it that their egg-laying days are over. No, absolutely not. Um, we had an egg on the way home in the oh. car and we've had uh, two to three eggs every day. So... They're, they're actually very much oh. egg layers. It's just that their production goes down a little bit after the first year once they start to molt. So they're not sort of economically viable in the batteries, and that's when they start right. to, to send them to slaughter. But we'll get eggs from them for the next few years, no problem. 
Um, and as I said, and we've had two nice. eggs. Oh, they're gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. You get nothing better than a lovely Very fresh nice. egg in the morning. <laughs> As someone who likes an egg for breakfast every morning, it sounds like fun. Martina, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, PJ. Pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Littlehillanimalrescue.ie is the website. Blaheen is actually back in Cork on Saturday. Um, or you can just find them on, on, on Facebook. It's the most unusual idea to adopt a pet hen. 1850-715-996. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. It almost seems, in the wake of what we've been discussing during the morning with COVID cases and hospitals crowded and all of that, it almost seems bad manners to talk about travel. But but the reality is that the first opportunity any of us can get who like to travel, we're gone. I take a vaccine in both arms and anywhere else they want to put it to allow me to get on a plane and go on holidays. And I think a lot of holiday destinations are eventually going to want you to have a vaccine before they let you in. But that's a few months down the road. But already the new year has started with a craze uh, to do with travelling. Um, it started very low-key on Instagram, but it's really taken off on TikTok. There's people putting up five sort of interesting or exotic places that they're determined to see when travel starts again. Um, one of mine would be, I mean, like, do you want to go to where, where are you going to go? Do you want to go to Bali or do you want to go to Ballycotton? Um, but there's a re- new re- resolution thing to get your photo taken in five interesting places. Sarah Slattery is the travel expert.ie. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. Hi, CJ. Happy New Year. And to you. We, we all would love to get going and get travelling ASAP, it's going to be a few months at least before it's safe to do so, I suspect. But people are still planning in their minds. Well, yes, January is traditionally the time when people start to book holidays uh, for the summertime. So without necessarily thinking we're we're travelling in in the short term, but it is certainly a time to plan for later on in the year. So, yeah, it's a good time for research to to think about what you want to do when you can get travelling again. Hmm. Will it be Will it be very expensive when we eventually do go to step on that plane? I think well certainly this year, I think July and August, assuming of course the vaccine and things go as positively and as hopeful as we we like, um I think July and August might be because there is a sort of a very small window when particularly families can travel. And it's the same everywhere, you know. There's only so many socially distanced, you know, beautiful homes on the beach that, that you can make avail of. So a lot of people were kind of will be looking for the same type of holiday, whether it's a holiday home in the wild Atlantic Way or in the Mediterranean. Or, you know, those kind of key properties, I think, will be extremely busy in July, August. But I'm saying with luxury hotels, with private beaches, things like that. But I do think... Other than that, those two months, I think, you know, obviously May, June, you know, I think I, I wouldn't foresee it being, I'd say, if anything, there might be deals uh, rather than, than prices, uh, price hikes. Yeah, you've already been looking on your website on a couple of interesting ones. Yeah, um, well, I, I have a few different posts about, um, I suppose, what I think people will want to go for this year. And also, you know, just getting back to families, Easter is still quite uncertain. 
So I think people will go, you know, let's kind of just go for July, August, go for, Hmm. you know, a nice, you know, luxury type holiday. So I think they will be the most sought after, Um, whether, as I said, whether it's at home or abroad. I also think Europe, Europe will be more popular because we're now in the EU traffic light system. It's easier to get to. You only have, you know, one flight as opposed to going to multiple airports. So I think Europe, if, if you are going to get on a plane, it more than likely will be within Europe, I would think. Yeah, yeah. You're also looking, of course, at the fact that, you know, a lot of us will be staying home again this year. Absolutely. Um, and and, and oh, looking yeah. around Ireland, will there, will, there be, will there be value around Ireland? We got value last year. Will there be value I, this year? I think value will be superb off peak, absolutely. But as I said, I do believe that July, August, as well as, you know, um, families, people, you know, they want to go sea swimming, as you know, everybody's swimming in the sea at the moment. Like they want to be there when it's warm. They want to be there in July, August, you know, so that's, they are going to be the two um, key months. You go on to do your road trip along the wild Atlantic Way and stay, you know, in a, 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 somewhere near the sea. You're, you're not going to want to do that in you know, May or October when it's cool. You want to do when, no, when no. you have nice long sunsets and things like that. So I think those two where, months that you are where would be your, they will be busy. Getting back to the five places, where, where would be your five, would you think? Well, I mean, the Wild Atlantic Way, it's not only our own top attraction, but according to Lonely Planet, it's like, you know, it's in there with the ultimate travel list this year. It's, I think, number 21, like, with the Galapagos Islands and Machu Picchu and all these amazing places like the Wild Lonely Planet consider that to be equally as um, impressive. So I think you kind of can't go wrong with that. And there's so many places to see along along there. I mean, obviously Cliffsamore and places like that are, are, are pretty obvious. But my own personal experience this year, um, Keen Bay in Ackle was by a mile my most popular Instagram photo. Um, and yeah. uh, by uh, way over anything else. And it was, I was totally blown away by it. I just thought the beach was spectacular. Uh, and then you yeah. can climb up, climb. I don't know if you've ever been, but you can climb up behind it. Um, the little sort of a small mountain behind it. The view out is absolutely spectacular. Oh, yeah. So that yeah, would be I, I went I last year. For the first time ever, I was in Melonhead last year, and one yeah. of the most remarkable places I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, just, just phenomenally beautiful. Sarah, I'll leave it there. Just really enjoyed your input into the programme last night on The Way We Were. That was fun. Uh, uh, thanks. Yeah, it was some great funny stories. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We've changed. Our lives have changed holiday-wise. Thank you very much. We'll talk again, okay. everyone, during the year. That's Sarah Slattery, the travel expert.e. All her ideas and deals uh, on that website. Always good to keep uh, your eye on that. I want to finish off today with um, with a sad story. I was sitting up the other night um, just uh, watching a bit of Netflix and, you know, that kind of thing. And I got a text from a good pal of mine, uh, Roy Buckley, um, asking me, uh, was it true or could I check whether Liam Riley had passed away. Now, I, I kind of jumped into journalist mode at half two, quarter to three in the morning, and I managed to, to verify it um, by about half three in the morning, and I posted myself on, on Twitter. Uh, Liam Riley, the, the front man, the founder, the voice, the songwriting genius behind Bagatelle, but a great artist on his own as well, and a man that I got to know over the last number of years through 
uh, my friend Roy Buckley, who joins me now. Liam, or Roy, good morning to you. Hiya, PJ. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. And to you, my friend. And Roy, you and Liam uh, were quite close over the last number of years. He played a huge role in, in the song collector sessions. How did you come to meet uh, Liam Riley? Absolutely. Um, you know, we were all shocked and saddened by the, the news, PJ, you know. Um, through a friend of ours called Francie Conway, Francie had played the song collector sessions, and he said to me, um, you know, Liam Riley would be great on these. And I jumped at it, you know. Of course, Liam is a, an absolute legend. And um, that he, he came and we became friendly. And you know yourself, PJ, because you have you've emceed a lot of those um, song collector sessions. He must, Liam must have played what twenty five or thirty of those with us, you know, um, yeah. all over Ireland. And and he came to Las Vegas with us when we did two shows over there, and we broke a Guinness World Record with our, our pals, the Black Donnellys, over there. So a lot of great memories with Liam, PJ, you know. Um, Memories are a treasure, to be honest with you, because um, yeah. I, I, I kind of I, I see it as an honour to, to spend a lot of time on the road with. Um, let's be serious. One of the greatest Irish artists of all time. Well, I was saying to, to Terry this morning in our meeting, um, Roy, that you know if you gather Irish people in a room anywhere in the world, particularly those who are away from home through immigration or something, within an hour, a Riley song will come up. Tell me about the anthem, the absolute anthems that Liam wrote. Well, there's loads, uh, PJ. When you consider the songs, Somewhere in Dublin, The Streets of New York, Flight of Earls, Boston Rose, Second Violin, uh, Raining in Paris, the Eurovision mm. one um, from 1990. Uh, Somewhere, Somewhere in Europe, Europe yeah. you know, like, and, and I've seen this all around our country, and I've seen it in America with them, especially among the Irish Americans, where... It's the same reaction, like his songs, as you said, like it, they've become part of Irish identity, you know, like mm. they make people feel Irish. And what more can you do as a songwriter than giving your own people um, anthems, you know? Yeah, and, and the great thing about it was, like, in a gig with Liam, the whole room knew the song from the first notes on the piano. We all knew the song. Yeah, but Liam was a master of, of the craft. I mean, Liam had it all, PJ. He had the voice, he was a master on piano. The ability to write hit after hit. He was an incredible performer. Yeah, yeah. And and great fun to be around. And I, I personally wanted to do this publicly today. I wanted to thank you, Roy, for giving me that opportunity. Great fun to be around and to work with. Well, sure, PJ, he had great time for you as well. Anytime I was ever speaking to Liam, like, we'd, we'd be, we used to be on the phone every couple of weeks. Actually, just about two weeks ago, we, we had a long phone call, which I'm so happy that I had with him again. Um and he always yeah. asked about you, but I spoke about loads of different things with him. Just just recently, like his time with Gus Dudgeon, he was in Nashville with Pete St. John a while back over an Imro songwriting thing, um, about his songs, about the new Bagatelle book that's just come out, everything, you know, he was, and he was in good form. He was, like Liam had a, had a great wit. He was very witty, you know, like he, I, I, so many times I was doubled over laughing at Liam, and you know oh, yeah. it because you've been in the company as well. Yeah, an absolute demon. As I described him, a lovable rogue and, and great fun. Great fun to be around. Roy, we will miss him terribly, um, and all of us. And unfortunately, at a time like this, we cannot go to a funeral that I think many of us would love to go. Well, the thing is, Liam would get a massive send-off because of the legend that he is. And one thing is for sure, his fans and, and his brothers in, in, in Bagatelle and his fans around the world love him. His legacy will definitely live on, PJ, you know. I have one great memory from um, 
a song clip session in Cork. I wanted to mention this because on stage in the PAV there was um, Liam Riley, Ricky Lynch and Reuben Lynch. And oh God, that's poor Reuben. We lost Reuben as well and it's just, it's such a great memory to have like photographs and videos that I've been sharing in the last few days with um, with, with, with the, the two, two lads together, you know, and it's just, uh, you know, it's two great musicians gone again and, yeah. you know, what, what, what they gave and share their passion with all of us, you know, it's just yeah. legends. Yeah. All right. Roy, listen, thank you very much for taking our call today. Uh, thank you so much. And, and my condolences on the loss of a man who I know to you was a, was a dear friend and, and indeed a big influence on your, on your own career. Thank you, well, Roy, PJ, for that. Thank you very much for doing this, because as you said, we can't give Liam um, or Ruben the send-off that they deserve, and at least we can do it through media, you know. And, and, yeah. and uh, you know, there was tears on Saturday, of course, but... Seeing the amount of tributes and love that was pouring in, um, you know, over over the last uh, two days, has been so uplifting, and it's great to see um, the respect uh, coming in, and uh, just for 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 everything that was given through music, you know. Absolutely. All right, listen, Roy, thank you very much. And I'm going to play out today, I think it is only right and proper to play out with a blast of uh, a Liam Riley song, the Liam Riley song, Trumbull in Dublin. So before we head away, uh, Terry produced the show, Terry, Terry Brennan uh, edited the show, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Additional help from Wayne Hilton and the Jer Cassidy. It's good to be back. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.